0: I've titled this, The Meeting of the Church, Back to the Basics. On uh, Monday night, uh, the Dallas Cowboys did not uh, fare so well. In fact, I must confess, I said to Jeanette, turn it off. (laughs) I knew where it was going, and I could not stand the pain any longer. I don't know a lot about football, but I can tell you this. Whatever is going on in that uh, back room and whatever is being said by the by the coaches, I think I could sum it up this way. Back to the basics. Back to simple basics, right? Blocking, tackling, no razzle dazzle, no frills, just doing the basic things right. Well, I would have to say that if Church attendance were the scoreboard for the church in America. We'd be uh, looking about like the cowboys right now. I read an article entitled Seven Seven Startling Facts, An Up-Close Look at Church Attendance in America. Now, I confess, I I boiled those down to my own set of points, and so they're not exactly like this. But here's the essence of it. The American church attendance is steadily in decline. Probably no surprise to you. Less than 20% of Americans attend church with any regularity. But here's the kicker. They lie. When the pollsters ask the question about church attendance, the number's 40%. But when they do the actual count, it's 20. Twenty percent of the American population attend church with some regularity. Third, this is my summation of a couple of their points. Churches of our size and age are declining most rapidly. Churches about our age and about our size are the ones experiencing the greatest decline. Fourth. The increase in churches, that is, what little growth is happening in churches across the country, is only one-fourth of what's needed to keep up with the population growth, which leads to this rather disturbing conclusion. By the year 2050, the percentage of U.S. population attending church will be almost half of what it was in 1990. Now, I have to tell you, that's not really a very encouraging statistic. And I would suggest that we, like the Cowboys, need to recognize there may be some things wrong. And that we need to get back to the basics. And I've chosen uh, this text in 1 Corinthians 14 to be the primary text as we seek to get back to the basics. And I might remind you as we go there that the church at Corinth was a church that was in trouble too. I mean, you, you you have to say, as you look at 1 Corinthians, not to mention 2 Corinthians, you have to say, here is a church with lots of trouble. For example, there is division in the church that we see, especially in chapters 1 through 3. There is immorality in the church in chapter 5. But the worst part of it is, the church doesn't deal with it and is actually proud of their tolerance of that sin. Doctrinal error, chapter 15, error pertaining to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ had to be corrected. Then there was the issue of meats offered to idols. And what we see in First Corinthians 11 is misconduct at the Lord's Supper, at the gathering of the church, that was so serious that some people were sick and some had already died as a part of God's judgment on sin in the church related to the church meeting. Well, those are not very encouraging things in the church uh, at Corinth, but I want you to notice that what Paul is saying in our primary text, he is saying as the solution, or at least a part of the solution, to the problem that we see in that Corinthian church. He says, what is the outcome then? So he has gone through all this litany of trouble (laughs) And he has dealt with this problem that they've got of having a preferential attitude toward tongues and and sort of a downward glance at prophecy. And he said, so here's where it all shakes out. So here's where Paul comes down to the point of application and says, here's what needs to be done. As I would put it, here are the fundamentals. Now, I understand that some people... Look at this as just an example of Paul dealing with a church. But I have to say, as I come to this text, that it is instruction for the whole church. It is instruction for us that we desperately need to hear. But I want to start with a couple of initial observations. One is, our Western American perspective on the church is far from the norm. I thought about some examples that may, may illustrate what I'm saying. It's like having Madonna come and speak to us about modesty. Or Kim Jong-un speak to us about the virtues of democracy or family values. Karl Marx speaking on capitalism. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani on, or the Ayatollah Khomeini on religious liberty. Or me on fasting. I still remember the Sunday I preached on that. I'd had two donuts before the message. And I kid you not. We really don't have it right. I think it disturbs me that we perceive ourselves to be the experts on church because we have some of the biggest churches. And it's almost always the leaders in those big churches that are that are asked to speak and to talk about how to do it and how to do it right. I have to say to you, I think in God's scheme of things, it's the church in North Korea that can tell us about reality. And I think that's where it's going on. And frankly, we have to come to the subject of church recognizing our worldview is really a distorted one. The normal church was small, often struggling, and almost certainly suffering some kind of adversity or persecution. And that, I believe, is the norm uh, that is still there today. So let me just say, in addition to that, when we come to Acts, especially I'm thinking of chapters 2 through 4 and First Corinthians chapter 14, we come to what I would call the ideal church. It's the church in two to four in its youth before Ananias and Sapphira and then the widows and all the other stuff. The problems start coming. We're, we're looking at the ideal church, and I think we need to, because when Jesus deals with problems, he always takes us back to the ideal. So when someone asks him about divorce in Matthew chapter 19, He essentially goes back and says, here's the way it was originally. Here's the ideal, and never forget that ideal. I think that is true of what we read here about the church, and I will say then that this ideal is not going to be reached in this life. But it's an ideal we always ought to keep before us. It is an ideal for which we should strive. But we shouldn't be all bent out of shape if we don't perfectly realize it And in particular, on any one given Sunday. It's like a husband reading about the ideal husband or a wife reading Proverbs 31. Look, folks, none of us get there. But that is the ideal. And that is the thing for which we should strive. The church gathered in the New Testament, as I understand it, after those first initial days. It gathered once a week. And it gathered with the lord 's Supper as the primary focus of that gathering, although other things took place. You know that it was a, a, a kind of event where various people spoke as as Paul writes here, various people came with various contributions to make, and it was probably pretty different than the highly structured church that we see today where you have one or two. Primary leaders who are directing everything as it goes. That's not the way you see the church described in 1 Corinthians 14 or in the uh, scriptures. I do believe that when we come to the principles uh, that we see here in 1 Corinthians 14 and elsewhere, that these are principles that are universal. They are broad enough that they apply to any church in any culture at any time in human history. That's the beauty of these, and that's why I see those as very important to us. All right, that gets me down to the fundamentals. Here are some of the primary principles that I see in 1 Corinthians 14 and in some other texts that I think are very, very important to us. Several of these are are expressed in terms of tensions, and you'll see that. Because I think both elements are true, although they seem to be opposites. I think they're the, the bookends between which uh, church experience takes place. The first is this. The church meeting is both horizontal and vertical. It is not just the vertical of us speaking to God. It is us speaking to one another and us corporately speaking to God. Listen to those words uh, that you have in your in your bulletin that uh, Keith put for us for our worship this morning. In Ephesians chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your hearts. I think I like from your hearts better. To the Lord. So we're speaking to one another, but we're also speaking to the Lord. Those don't happen in isolation. They happen in combination. And he says, always giving thanks to God the Father for each other in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this verse 21, I think, is more critical than I've seen it before. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If there is ever a place for submission to one another, one of those places is the meeting of the church. I think it's absolutely critical. Now, I could have gone to Colossians 3 or Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, or other verses to emphasize the same aspect, and that is there is both the horizontal and the vertical that takes place When you come to the gathering of the church, that was also true in the Psalms and in Israel's worship. It was not just vertical, and it was not just horizontal. Now, let's look at the horizontal for for just a moment. In the horizontal dimension, one of the key elements is the edification of fellow believers, I think you understand that the New Testament speaks of the gathering of the church as not primarily for evangelism, but rather it is for the church to be edified, built up, and sent out. And evangelism as a general rule takes place outside the church. What's interesting in 1 Corinthians 14 is even though that is true, it says that we are to be conscious of the fact that unbelievers may come. And he says, therefore, when, for instance, tongues occurs, if an unbeliever comes and observes uh, the chaos which often accompanied tongues, where there was competition to speak and no interpretation, Paul says, in effect, they'll think you're crazy. And it doesn't do the gospel any favor. He says, if there's prophecy and God is actually exposing the reality of the sin in men's hearts, then they may well be brought to faith. I think that's one of the things that we do fairly well at in our meeting of the church. I know that there are some uh, in our body who in particular are sensitive to the fact that somebody may be sitting out there who is absolutely outside the faith and they will make a point of making the gospel clear to them in terms that they can understand. The Lord's Supper is about the gospel. But I think it's also important to make it clear to people who may be unbelievers just what that is all about. Vertically, when we're talking about our worship of God, there is a corporate dimension. And so it is important in the meeting of the church that everybody be able to actually enter into that worship together. So... Paul says, for example, in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 14, what happens when somebody is speaking in tongues and it's uninterpreted? He said, how can anybody else say amen to that? Have you ever noticed when when somebody will say something or pray something that we resonate with and that we know speaks what we want to speak to God as well, what do we say? Amen. But if you don't know what is being said, you can't say amen. You don't know. And so the gathering of the church involves those activity where other believers can actually understand and resonate with that and say amen. So that the corporate aspect of worship really uh, takes place. I've been thinking about this with respect to children. If the goal and the ideal for the church gathering is for all the believers to be able to say amen and participate, then my question is, to what degree are we actually considering our children? Is it possible that we are speaking over the heads of our children so much that they really can't say amen to what we're talking about? Now, Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we want to turn the meeting of the church into junior church. We're not trying to dumb everything down, if that's a very good expression. But it seems to me we need to be aware of the fact that if children are there, then it's important that they join with us in worship. And I'm not sure that we're paying quite enough attention to what that may look like. If there are different musical tastes and some people worship better with one flavor as opposed to another, then maybe we need to have multiple flavors of some of the things that we sing. I think it means, too, and I've said this before, I'm beating on a drum a little bit, if the whole church is to comprehend and to participate in what is taking place and respond in worship, then it seems to me they have to hear it. And and what that means is things like microphones. Those guys, when they walk around with the microphones, they're they're not just trying to harass us. They're saying to us, there are people sitting here right now who, apart from that microphone, would not be able to hear what is being said, and they can't join in, therefore, in all that, that takes place. It means that we ought to speak clearly so that other people really hear us and understand us. And I think it means that we must be sensitive to distractions. Is there anything that's taking place within our realm or range of responsibility that somehow keeps somebody else either from hearing or concentrating on what it is that's being said? If so, then we need to pay attention to that. I don't want to beat that unnecessarily, but the point is the goal is for everyone to understand and enter in. And that has practical implications that I think all of us ought to take into account. I call this one freedom in form or spontaneity and structure. I see both of those taking place in in the meeting of the church. Now, I have to tell you, that in in the mega church and in the televised church today you got scripts folks you have scripts i think one of the beauties of the new testament gathering is nobody can say in advance at you know 10:15 this is what's going to happen and so many seconds it's not like a television program where everything is neatly scripted out and that's part of the beauty i think but notice for example in uh, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, verse 30. It talks about a, a man who is speaking and another man receives a revelation and the first man sits down and he, he, he uh, speaks. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen it happen where actually God had somebody else on the program? <laughs> I think what that implies, and I'll, I'll speak to this a little bit later, I think what it implies is that not everything that is done in the meeting of the church has some individualized zap of the Holy Spirit. I take it that because people have come prepared, there are things that people will share at opportune times. But there was also the expectation that God might show up in some different way, in the sense of some unexpected way, and someone might have a prophet, for instance, in those times, somebody might have a revelation and it didn't quite fit the program, but the first guy was to sit down and yield the floor. Now, I've watched that in in little subtle ways here, and I'm not really suggesting that we go bananas with it, but have you ever watched when two guys get up at the same time and, and they both start heading down for the microphone? Always one of them turns in, you know, Somewhere and waits. That's what we ought to do. We ought to recognize that there are other people that have things to say, and God may be leading them, and we may need need to yield the floor. So there are cert- there's a certain unpredictability about the meeting of the church, which I think is exciting and stimulating, and and it ought to be there ought to be a sense at every gathering that something might happen that's just not on the program but that God shows up and we know it's his hand. The other is that there are certain predictables. For example, we would show up every uh, Sunday with the Lord's table there because we believe that is the core of, of what we remember. It's the essence of the gospel reminded to us and commemorated by us. So there are certain things that we would expect. We would expect prayer to be one of those regulars that takes place. So this meeting that takes place has this combination of spontaneity and unexpectedness and regularness, if you would, and predictability, but they're both put together. And that takes, I think, some adjustment and some humility on our part to deal with. Oh, one more thing. The freedom of the New Testament church meeting gives opportunity for things to go wrong. I think one of the reasons why people want structure is because they don't want mistakes. Now, isn't that what we as parents do? Especially with young kids. Man, we want to limit their options. We want to limit their options as to where they are and who they're with and whatever. Because we know, we let that thing go too loose and free, we're in trouble so were our kids. But there is, I think, in the church meeting, there is the opportunity for things to go wrong. And even that is a learning opportunity to see, for example, how men in the body respond graciously to, to perhaps correct or to deal with that. I've, I've told you the story before, and some of you were there and remember it. But one of our dear brethren, who's now with the Lord, dropped the communion tray with, uh, with the wine. And uh, it wasn't a carpet like this. <laughs> so It really made a little more difference <clears throat> than it would here with our kind of orange's carpet. It was a moment of real embarrassment. And it was like, ooh, what do we do now? And one of our guys got up and said, this is a wonderful object lesson. Some people talk about the blood of Jesus being spilled. Spills are accidents, he said. The blood of Jesus wasn't spilled, it was poured out. And that's what we're here to remember. And you come away saying, that was great. Not because something didn't go wrong, but because in the course of that, you could see God speaking to his body in sort of real life, real time ways. Here's another one. Universal participation preparation. I'm sorry. Universal preparation, yet limited participation. When you look at this text, it says each one of you has. Now I've been thinking about that a little bit. I, I, I have to say that one of the translations that I checked likes to play the gender loosey goosey game and says, brothers and sisters. And I'm not sure that you really want to use that here in this context, given the restrictions that are placed. But I would say this. Is it not true that every single believer should be prepped in some way for the worship meeting that takes place here on Sunday morning? Isn't there there some way in which uh, the women who may not speak or the men who may not speak who they come prepared so they have, as it were, the substance in their hearts to participate because they've already prepared themselves for what is going to take place. If that is true, I think it is also true for our children. And we as parents ought to be aggressive in helping our children to prepare for what's going to happen so that in a sense it isn't uh, it isn't cold turkey. Now, the other part of that is that there are many things that people come prepared to do or to say that can't happen because they're just limits. Paul says two or no more than three speak in tongues, assuming there's an interpreter. Two or no more than three prophesy. So there's this whole sense of proportion. And that means that somebody may have prepared something really lovely to share but several have already done something like that, then it's time for other things to happen. But the beauty of it is, it's not wasted on two levels. Number one, Paul says to the one who feels uh, the, the Spirit coming in the context of tongues, and he says, if there's no interpreter there, speak to yourself and to God. Just because you don't participate publicly doesn't mean you can't participate privately. If your goal is to worship God, then you can do that without speaking, if indeed that's what the the circumstance requires. So your, your preparation is never wasted. I'm not quite sure that I can press it so hard, but in effect, verse 31 says, let each one speak in turn. It seems to me what you can say is, if you have some excellent thing to share, there's always next Sunday or the Sunday after that. It isn't wasted. You just save it. So there is that whole element of, of uh, preparation on the one hand, and everybody ought to be prepped. But there's also that element of limited participation, and we need to be sensitive as to when what we say will be most edifying and glorifying to God. A word about leadership. Isn't it interesting that in this text, elders are not mentioned? Now, this church had lots of problems, and maybe some of the problems were elder problems. I don't know. But what I get the sense of is that when Paul talks about worship, the congregation owns it. It's not one person, and it's not even the elders uh, collectively who, who, who structure and regulate every particular element. This is, this is portrayed in the sense of everybody has a role and a responsibility. Even with regard to listening to teaching, it says let the others judge. Now whether that means the other prophets or whether that means all, I think ultimately we're all collectively responsible and we just can't say let George, so to speak, Elder George or whoever it is, let George do it. This is our responsibility. We come and if things don't go well, then it's a reflection on us. Because somehow we may not have prepared and led as we should. There's not a top-downishness, that's all I can say. There's not a top-downishness to what I read in the scriptures when it comes to the church's uh, worship. Here's one that's really interesting, and I don't know that I'd ever put this in these terms in my own mind. The meeting of the church should be both spirit-led and discretionary. Now, I think that what was happening at Corinth is that people were using the, the expression led of the Spirit as their lion in the road. The lion in the road, remember, is the justification to do what you want to do, whether it makes sense or not. Uh, if there's a lion in the road who's going outside to go to work, you're going to stay in bed where it's safe. That was the, that was the logic of the sluggard in, in Proverbs. But you see this element of, of, of uh, Spirit leading. And, and so, for example, when one man is speaking and another receives a revelation, you get the sense that the Spirit has moved for something to be said or done, and there is a sensitivity to that, that that's the Spirit's leading. The other side of that is, just having some kind of, 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 of activity of the Spirit is not a mandate. Because Paul says to the one with with uh, in the context of tongues, if you feel moved to speak in tongues, and there is no interpreter, then you don't speak. You know, what? it's every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, you know, I'll do this or that. Not necessarily. I think that is fascinating. That one of the things that has to take place in the context of the meeting is, I think there are events where people, men have prepared, but they don't necessarily get 220 volts to jar them out of their seats, they just feel like it's, it's the proper thing to say and do. I think there are times where it is clear to the individual and hopefully to the rest later on that God has actually prompted them to say or do something in the context of that meeting that was, you might say, spontaneous and spirit-led. But I think there are times when we feel the Spirit and we are not to publicly participate, and that's exactly what Paul says. So here's what I, what I came to. Try it on for, for size. Spirit leading may be in principle as well as in particular. I'm going to jump tracks now and go to the area of guidance. When it comes to guidance, there are at least a couple ways in which that could happen. One, you could be driving out of the, uh, of the parking lot And you intend to turn left and somehow, some people would say, the Spirit told me to turn right. Well, I don't know. That that could conceivably happen. But, you know, in general terms, what we find of the guidance of God is that God talks to us. For example, let's just talk about uh, marriage and who God might have for you as a mate. God doesn't have to speak out of the clouds and say, This is the woman. God has spoken in His Word and said, Don't associate with a person given to anger. Don't associate with a fool. There are all kinds of parameters that the Scripture have given uh, have given us pertaining to who we should associate with. If the Scripture describes the person we we, we think we're falling in love with as a fool or an angry person... Do we need God to speak out of the clouds? And I would suggest to you that God often directs and leads through His Spirit through the fruit of the Spirit. Now, here's what I've been thinking about. In all of this that we're reading in chapter 14, we have to remember that it follows chapter 13. And chapter 13 is about love. When Paul says... in in Romans chapter 13. If we follow the law of love, if we relate to one another in the law of, of love, we will fulfill those things that the law would demand or require. People who are led by love don't need a long list of rules. And so it seems to me that when we come to the church gathering, what it's saying is, when people love one another, Then they care most about their benefit. They're looking out for their interests. So love is going to, is going to submit, as, as Paul says in Philippians 2, your interest to the interest of others. So it seems to me that many of the things that are guiding principles for the Spirit to lead us are those things that the Spirit produces in us, like love, humility, submission, wisdom. So the Spirit may be leading us not in direct ways, but in indirect ways. And in fact, I was noticing in that in the verse in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, do you notice when it talks about being filled with the Spirit? It is not talking about individuality there. It's talking about being filled with the Spirit as a whole body, as the Spirit directs all of us toward God in worship. So it seems to me that we have to take this element then and, and say there is the element of, of uh, spirit uh, uh, working and leading and there is the element of structure, two or no more than three, and much of that leading, I think, comes to play when uh, when the spirit works through love and submission and humility to govern what we say and do in the gathering of the church. Now, this leads me to the end game. If you look at Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6, I think it's always helpful to ask yourself, where should this go? When we gather together as a church, where should it lead? I'll remind you, Romans chapter 14 is about convictions. And one of the things that it says there is, if you have convictions, keep them to yourself. Am I right? And it says, convictions are not something to be argued about. Chapter 14. When he gets to chapter 15, he now spells out, as it were, the end game. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the goal is to glorify God with one voice. Now, I know there are some churches that hire professional musicians so that everybody can just be on the right key and all of that. And that's not bad. I'd rather hear a good choir than a bad one. But it isn't just what we do. It is that. But it's how we do it. I think one of the things that gives great glory to God is that He has taken... The most diverse group of people, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free. He's taken all of those and clumped them into one body, one new man. And he brings us together so that we may, with one voice, bring glory to God. I have to tell you folks, that's powerful testimony. When people come and they see the kind of diversity the church ought to have, and they see diversity of gift, they see diversity of culture, they see diversity of of, uh, of ethnicity and all of those things, and they come and they see a body who with one voice speaks in love and harmony to one another and to God, they got to say, that is a miracle. That's what the church meeting is about. God did not give us these instructions because it's the easiest way to do church. He gave us these instructions because that is the way when we do church, it will be clear God showed up. And that's why it's so important, I think, to all of us. One last observation. In the temple and from house to house, it's obvious to me that there are certain things... In the early church, that could happen better in the temple. I would say teaching would be one of those. And there were other things that could happen better in houses. As I understand it, when the Lord's Supper was observed, it was observed in the context of a meal. I doubt that they all brought their picnic baskets to the temple. But how much easier it was to do that from one house to another... And so one of the things we have, as elders have been thinking about is, what are the things that we do best together, all together, and what are the things that we do best in smaller groups? That's why when we started community, we started with one gathering in, in two parts and then ministry groups that gathered in small groups. And we still believe that's the way that it ought to work. So one of our points of emphasis is this. We believe ministry groups need to be strengthened and buttressed. Because i got to tell you, when persecution comes, that may be where we're meeting. is right there. That's the way it happens around the world. God hasn't chosen the easy way for us. But he has set forth the way. And the challenge for us is to take that up in the power of the Spirit... And through love and humility, to pursue that as our goal. Father, thank you for the instructions that you have given to us in your word about how we're to do church. And that as we follow the things that you have set forth for us, we might find that our worship and our gathering is greatly improved and that it brings great glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.